Good morning. Welcome again to In-Town Church. We're so glad that you're in worship with us. If you're visiting with us and new, we've been going through a long study of the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we come to Luke chapter 20. This is our Gospel reading. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless, the second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection." But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and your people are gathered before you to hear it read, to hear it taught. And we are all wanting to know more. We are all here this morning. Maybe we're just curious, but we're wanting to know if Jesus might be real, that he might be the answer to our spiritual quest. Others of us here are committed to that, committed to that truth, and yet we also have a difficult time believing at times in the resurrection and how it is relevant to our daily life. We believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. Father, we pray that as we go through this passage, as we continue worship, would you meet us where we are? Would you grant us your word? Would you grant us your presence, your love, and your grace? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Lawrence Krauss is a quite well-known theoretical physicist, and he also is one of the pioneers in string theory and other things. And so when I wanted to know a little bit more about what string theory was and about quantum mechanics and so forth, I was interested in science. And so I, I picked up his most important book, and it's called The Physics of Star Trek. I figured... If I was going to read about string theory and quantum mechanics, that it, all, it ought to be connected to a TV show. Like, that would make it a little bit more accessible to a brain like mine. Now, what he does in this book is he explains the physics of Star Trek and how, at least theoretically, most of what Gene Roddenberry conceived of in that universe, in that future, is theoretically possible. Now, one of the coolest things, the coolest technologies to me, is the transporter that Captain Kirk can walk into the room and all of a sudden, in an instant, become a beam of light and be transported down to the planet below. Or as the aliens are coming to kill him, he can instantly turn into a beam of light and be transported back to safety. Hundreds of years from now, computers in Gene Roddenberry's mind were so powerful that they could digitize every inch 
every little part, every atom of Captain Kirk's body. Memorize every single speck of energy, store it, and every connection and pattern and every memory that he had ever had, and store it and digitize it, put it into an energy field or, or beam or whatever it is, and send it somewhere else, and then reassemble it in a number place, uh, another place. Now, every person, every one of you in here has a few trillion neurons in your brain alone. But complex as that may be, what makes you unique is not just the number of neurons, but how they're interrelated, how they cross-reference one another, how they're connected, how they're laid on top of each other. It all forms a pattern. And the number of possible patterns in one person's brain that could exist between all of those neurons is more than every atom in the entire universe. It's incomprehensible to think about how complex one human brain is and the memories and the passions and the feelings and the likes and the wants that they have, that that could be digitized and beamed across. Now, Lawrence Krauss talked about all of these possibilities, but one of the things, and you you need to be careful when you talk about, well, science could never do that because science moves in revolutions and not just in increments. But scientists mostly are in agreement that you could never possibly beam another person or even a, a particle across something like that and reassemble it. The amount of data and just one person could never be analyzed, much less stored and then digitized and moved across space and time. Now, the Sadducees are a new group that we haven't met, and they obviously don't know anything about quantum physics. They don't know anything about beaming people up. They didn't watch Star Trek, but they were dubious, nonetheless, of a resurrection, of a physical, real resurrection that a person could die and disintegrate and be raised back to life as they were with their memories intact, with their love and their passion, with their hopes, with their dreams, all intact and raised again to new life. They didn't believe this. Come on, Jesus. Do you really expect us to believe that that is possible in this universe? Now, who are the Sadducees? We've gotten to know the Pharisees through our study of Luke, but the Sadducees are a little bit different. They're an opposition party to the Pharisees, and they're part of this wealthy, aristocratic, priestly group of families. Now, they believed in God, but that's sort of a stripped-down version. All they believed about the Bible was the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. That was their scripture. That was what they believed in. And they had a very high emphasis on personal morality and ethics, as did the Pharisees, but they didn't believe in a coming kingdom. They didn't believe in a Messiah. They didn't believe in a coming judgment, and they did not believe in a resurrection of the body. So, in other words, wealthy, educated, educated, upper-class, spiritual, but not in a super-specific way. They denied the miraculous. They're very ethical, but in that context, a little bit liberal in regards to their view of Scripture and their view of religion. Now, the Pharisees, who show up in the last verse, are their opposition and their their hated enemies. They were very concerned about ethics and public morality, as were the Sadducees, but they, they did believe very strongly in a physical, literal resurrection a Messiah who would bring in a new kingdom. 
And so when Jesus affirms their perspective, they say, well said, teacher, way to go, Jesus. Even though throughout Luke, we've seen they've been trying to trap him and put him in, a, in, in prison and kill him. They believe very deeply about spirituality and spiritual things, but they were a bit more fire and brimstone, if you will. Their ethics were determined by a very personal God who would bring wrath and judgment, and the fate of the nation was tied to the public morality of the nation. Two different versions of reality, two different conceptions of God and spirituality, two different visions for the nation of Israel, two different affiliations. They hated one another. They wouldn't work together. But as much as they worried about the ascendancy of the other party, they were much more worried about the ascendancy of this third party, this new person on the, on the scene, Jesus The Pharisees have been doggedly pursuing him, trying to trap him, and now it's the Sadducees' turn. And they set up the argument like this, Jesus, come on, given the law of leveret marriage, how can resurrection be possible? Now, we don't know a whole lot about leveret marriage in our day, but in that day, it was an understood thing. And so they saw it as a complete disconnection from the resurrection being possible, Moses wrote for us, they say to Jesus, and referring to Deuteronomy 25, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now, this seems a bit paternalistic, and given our modern conventions of marriage as sort of a project of, of personal fulfillment, this seems kind of oppressive to women. What if the brother was a good bit younger, a good bit older? What if he was a jerk? What if he's a creep? Would she still have to marry him? But in the context of this ancient world, it's a very merciful, even a, a progressive concept. Because if you became a widow in that day and you didn't have a family support system, if you didn't have children to support you, then you were on the precipice of, of poverty and oppression, and exploitation. In an agrarian, patriarchal culture, a woman couldn't just go get a job. She couldn't just go down the street and apply for a job. She was utterly dependent upon first her husband, and then secondarily, if the husband dies upon her children, if she didn't have children, she was probably going to be in poverty. The provision here of leveret marriage wasn't primarily to restore the happiness and delight and togetherness of marriage. It was to protect that woman. It was to protect widows from poverty and exploitation. But the Sadducees see it as a proof that Jesus' understanding of resurrection could not possibly be true. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first one married a woman and died childless, and the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one, and so on. Now, What's happening to all these brothers? This has got to be the most unlucky woman on the face of the earth. But they go on and on, and it sounds sort of like a Monty Python gag. And in many ways, it is, because this is a setup. This is sarcasm. They're using irony to try and poke fun at this whole idea of resurrection. If Jesus says, yes, indeed, sophisticated, educated Sadducees, slightly more liberal, that I do hold to this truth of Scripture, that I do hold to resurrection, then he's going to sound like a far-right fundamentalist to them. 
If he caves on the truth and says, ah, we don't need to worry about the spiritual and the miraculous and we just need to be ethical people, then he's going to look like he's caving and compromising and weak to the very conservative Pharisees. But he doesn't do either. Just as we've seen throughout this, especially this last chapter where people are trying to trap him, he says, I will not stand and answer your binary conception of how the world must be. The gospel is analog. I cannot answer that question in that way. I'm going to answer it how I will answer it because he is the creator. He's the king. He answers it in a different way. He reframes the question entirely. Now, remember, the Pharisees are applauding him. They've been tracking him down and trying to trap him, and all of a sudden they're applauding him. But it's really only in the the sense that an enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And so, well said, teacher. They don't like him any more than the Sadducees. The Sadducees are okay with ethical teaching, with him calling people to a moral life, but a kingly Messiah who would come in and bring a miraculous resurrection— That's for lower class people. That's for less educated, less sophisticated people. The Pharisees, though, reject him for another reason entirely. They agree with him on the supernatural, on the miraculous, that God is a personal God who brings judgment, who brings wrath. But he won't come to reach out to people on the margins and bring them in and include the untouchable, to include the alien and the widow and the poor. No, what he's coming to do is to set up a religious theocracy with them on top. And Jesus says, no, I'm inverting that, and they hate him for it. The Sadducees and the Pharisees hate him for exactly different reasons. And because of this, Jesus, in our day, in their day, sounds too liberal for conservative people and too conservative for liberal people. But he doesn't create something in the middle. He doesn't create a moderate third party. He doesn't create a hybrid. He creates something entirely different. And as soon as we try and pin down Jesus, as soon as we try to use the categories that we're accustomed to using, trying to adopt him into our party, our platform, our perspective, our agenda, as soon as we try to co-opt Jesus for what we want to see happen and for our agenda, he not only evades us, but he critiques us as well. Now, maybe you're tending, trending, or leaning towards more of the Sadducee perspective. You're attracted to Jesus' moral teaching, his moral life, his care for the poor, the outsider. You kind of resonate with his polemics against greed and power and the concentration of power in only a few. But you're sophisticated, modern, and all this talk about judgment makes you uncomfortable. All of these, this talk about real miracles and that Jesus rose from the dead and that anyone connected with him will also rise from the dead. Aren't we a little bit too sophisticated for that? Haven't we moved beyond all this talk of judgment? And isn't this just an ancient way of how ancient people tried to make sense of their world? To us, if that's our challenge, Jesus proclaims to us a resurrection that is real that is bodily, that is miraculous, and we can't just latch on to those things that we like about Jesus and co-opt them into our own agenda saying that, well, he's a good teacher, he was a good moral person, because as soon as we jettison that other side of who Jesus is, we jettison the whole reason to follow him in the first place because we jettison his sanity. And we say that Jesus was a good moral teacher, and yet he believed in all of this stuff, and he believed that he was the Messiah, he was the resurrected king. 
How is that person good? How is that person worthy of following? Jesus says that he's bringing a whole new world, and it centers upon a real resurrection, and you can't have him without it. You can't have Jesus without the whole Jesus. On the other side, neither can we gravitate towards his talk of moral virtue and seriousness about sin and the authority and power of God and yet not recognize, not embody what he has to say about the alien and the poor and the worldly use of power and money. His resurrection was given, happened, so that to ensure that the widow and the poor were brought in, that the terrible, awful sinner was made new. Jesus is far, and let me apologize for a moment, in in case anyone in here feels stereotyped, I'm using them just for a rhetorical purpose, but Jesus is far more loving and gracious than the most tender-hearted liberal and far more holy than the most upstanding, law-abiding conservative. In the gospel, we see God's wrath towards sin that it is so blindingly powerful and pure and burning that it took the death of God's own son to pay for the penalty of sin. But on the other hand, we see that his love and grace is so protective and so intimate and so limitless that God sacrifices his own son to rescue his people. This passage, though, isn't only about Jesus' death, but it's about resurrection. It's about his resurrection and yours if you are in him. And we haven't actually dissected the particulars of his answer yet. We looked at his argument. Now we're looking at the answer as a way of looking at his understanding of the afterlife. He doesn't just split the difference between two constituencies, nor does he leave people where they are. But we need to see that because of what he says about the resurrection, because of what he says about the afterlife, about the new heavens and the new earth, that there is a reason for real hope. And he says two things. He talks about marriage and Moses in his understanding of the afterlife. And I'm going to talk about those two things, and then we'll end. Marriage, first of all. When you read through the Bible, you get this idea that the afterlife, the new heavens and the new earth, life there is so difficult to explain, maybe the most difficult thing to explain, that the writers of the Bible resort to apocalyptic literature. They resort to prophetic things with all of these images that is so beyond our expectation that it's almost hard to put into print and to write about But the message of the resurrection, the message of the afterlife goes something a little like this, is that God created his world to be good, a place where sadness and sin and sickness were kept at bay, but that humanity chose something entirely different, that they chose to be their own lords and masters, despoiling their own happiness, their own joy, their own relationships with one another and their relationship with God that they despoiled his creation. And what God says is that that sin, that thumbing of of their nose, of our noses at him, cannot go unpunished, that it can't be 
it can't be allowed to stand because it despoils everything that is good about humanity and about the world that God made. But instead of inflicting justice on you and on me, he inflicts, inflicts justice and judgment on himself. You and I have lived in this broken world, the world that we have caused to go astray, where grief and sadness and sorrow and pain and sickness are always just around the corner. But Jesus' conception of the resurrection is that this will not last forever. What Jesus is saying is that he has something prepared for you. He has something prepared for all of his people that you cannot fully comprehend because it so far transcends your understanding of delight and fullness and joy now. That the only way you can talk about it is through apocalyptic, prophetic literature and through images that give us just a glimpse of what the afterlife might look like. And one of those images is marriage. Marriage in God's design is meant to be the ultimate place of intimacy and togetherness. It's the one safe place in humanity that if it's experienced to the full is the place where shame, where hiding can fall away once and for all, where you can be naked with another human being and feel no humiliation. But in the afterlife, in the new heavens and the new earth, In the resurrection, the experience of the love of God, the intimacy with every heart, with one another, and with God will far surpass even the greatest marriage. There will be a depth of one, a depth of love and oneness that will far outpace even the greatest of married sex. That's what Jesus is trying to get uh, convey to us. Now, What's the other side of this? Because maybe you're happily married now. Maybe you want to be happily married. And you think, well, that seems a bit strange. How could I be happy and not have this togetherness, not have this oneness and closeness with my spouse for all of eternity? Well, we need to see that Jesus is not giving us a treatise on how the particulars of the relationships in heaven are going to work. And so he's not drawing, we shouldn't draw too many conclusions over Uh, uh, from what he's saying. But Jesus is talking here, and we can say just a few things. He's talking primarily about weddings and the cessation of weddings and the purpose for which they were created. In the ancient world, primarily the procreation of life, the maintaining of a name, a lineage. And what he is saying is that because there is no longer death, there is no longer need for that. There's no longer need for people to come together to procreate. He's talking primarily about weddings and not giving a treatise on how marriages that exist here will work in the new heavens and new earth. He's saying primarily that Sadducees, your whole premise is wrong. He's not telling us exactly how our relationship on earth with our spouse is going to be mirrored or not in heaven, and that your relationship with your spouse here will be suddenly eradicated in some way the intimacy and the love and the closeness to the, of, in the best marriages will be far transcended. And those who are widowed, divorced, lonely in this life will walk into a relationship with God and with others that will far surpass their greatest hopes for what marriage is or could be for them. You see, there's a tremendous discontinuity because relationships there will be so 
far better. And yet there's also a continuity because he still names these people by their name. He is a God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. God still relates to them as they were and who they are, their personhood, their story, their memories, their love and passions matter and are still part of who they are. So if you're married and you love your spouse deeply and you think you're getting a raw deal by this no marriage in heaven thing, don't worry. Because if God can raise you from the dead, I'm certain that he can grant you fulfillment within that continual relationship, that he can make possible a love and intimacy with your spouse that will transcend and eclipse what you experienced here. Marriage is an image. It's a picture. It's a glimpse into what will exist in the new heavens and new earth, what you experience in the greatest, closest most loving marriage here on earth is only but a picture of what is coming. That's the first thing that Jesus is saying. Sadducees, your premise is all wrong, but let me also tell you this. What is coming is going to be phenomenal. He also talks about Moses. The Sadducees accepted only the Torah, the first parts of the book of Moses, and and that's what Jesus is quoting here, and he picks Exodus 3, He goes to a book, he goes to a passage that they recognize as authority, as authoritative. And he picks the burning bush passage, which is one of the most beautiful, mysterious, wonderful, packed with meaning passages in all of Scripture. God speaks to Moses through a fire that doesn't consume this bush. Now, why does Jesus pick this passage? Because If you didn't know this passage in Luke and you were just to read through Exodus 3, you could read it a hundred times and not come to the conclusion that, oh, there we have a proof text for resurrection. Why does Jesus choose this one? Let's look at that passage just briefly. Moses, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground where God's presence is, is holy And when you encounter the living God, it's dangerous. Take off your shoes as a show of respect, as a show that you recognize that you are in a dangerous spot, Moses, because you are encountering the holy, blazingly hot holiness of God. He's devastatingly holy, and he symbolizes himself in a raging fire. And yet, yet, he's a personal covenant-keeping God that speaks personally to Moses and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and speaks to them as real people, as his children, and treats them with dignity and love and grants them an eternal relationship, blazingly hot, furious, burning wrath and intense, eternal, inestimable love. That's what's going on here at the burning bush. Moses, take your sandals off because you've never experienced, you've never thought of anything like this before. He's more holy than the purest of conservatives can conceive and more gracious than the warmest of liberals could possibly imagine. And if you're a Christian, you're more sinful and more standing before God's holy wrath that should fully eradicate you, and yet 
At the same time, it doesn't because you are also more loved than you could possibly imagine. And in the gospel, in Jesus' death and resurrection, his justice and his judgment and his wrath and his anger doesn't come down and obliterate you. It is laid upon him, upon his son, as a substitute. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Moses. Not that he was the God of Abraham, not that he was the God of your grandparents before they passed on. He is. He is the God, present tense, of all of these patriarchs that came before. He is your God if you are in Christ. He is a personal, living, ever-present God that knows you, that cares about your story, and has given you the gift of his very own son. He's not the God of the dead, Jesus says, but the God of the living. Resurrection, very different than a teleporter. It's very different, but it's able to, God is able to maintain, to store, to reassemble your unique pattern, my unique pattern, not in a computer or a beam of light, but in his tender heart, in his loving presence that he maintains who you are even through death and resurrects you just as he resurrected his son. God tenderly and lovingly maintains and one day fully reconstructs those who belong to him in a way that maintains your personhood and identity and yet at the same time far transcends it. If God, excuse me, if God cannot do that, then friends, death is the end. It's the end of your story. Leo Tolstoy wrote in his confession, when I thought about the fame that all my literary works would bring to me, I would say to myself, very well, I will become famous. So what? What then? My question, that which at the age of 50 brought, to me, brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions a question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by my experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Or differently exposed, the question is, why should I live? Why should I hope for anything or do anything? It can be expressed thus, does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy. Maybe a corollary to that is what has happened in my life that death is presently destroying, that the sickness and sadness of this world has despoiled, and will it ever be healed? If God cannot do that, then death is the end, and all of the emotional scars that you have encountered, all the stamps of injury and crippling illness, the pain and loss of losing a child, mental disability, all of that stuff stands and it will be imprinted upon you and your story forever. And you'll never wiggle out from under it. And if you're not haunted by them, actually, you're haunted most likely by the thought of the eventuality of them. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, 
If you are raised from the dead, then your story doesn't end with your death. It doesn't st- their story doesn't end with your injury, with your mental illness, with any of those things because Jesus will reconstruct you and make you new. It's the most absurd thing that you could possibly believe in, and yet it lies at the very center, center core of what it means to believe in Jesus and to be a Christian. With death, if there's nothing after, your story ends, why do anything? Why care about anything? But with resurrection, hope flourishes again. It's a miracle. You have to believe in miracles to believe in the resurrection, and it's a miracle of staggering, mind-boggling proportion. But it's your center, central hope if you're a Christian. Let's pray. Father, I pray that just as each and every Sunday we have uh, persons here who are wrestling with the faith, wondering if they can continue to believe, wondering if they can believe to begin with. And this is a hard thing to wrestle with because it seems so otherworldly. It seems so absurdly difficult to believe something like this. And even those of us who are Christians would admit that from time to time we wonder if this could all be true. Lord, I pray that you would take our doubts, our fears, our hurts, our pains, and wash them away. Would you replace them with a hope that your resurrection is true, with an awaiting of our resurrection? And wherever we're coming from this morning, fully convinced or still questioning, would you let us take a step towards resting in what you have done and not trying to work off a debt so that we could one day be resurrected, but that you grant us that in grace. We pray that we would receive it, accept it, live in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.